When we watch a full-length film, 40 seconds of dialogue is a drop in the ocean of the movie's moments, but we're about to zero in on 40 seconds from a film titled The Centenarian, written and directed by Peter Alexander, centering on a bounty hunter and his quest. This is a bit called Searching for Sean, and here's what the character Dawson says. All men are soldiers at some point, whether they know it or not. They fight for country. They fight for friends. They fight for themselves. Sean, Sean fought for country, but somewhere along the way, he started to fight for himself. Sean was already dead, and I think he knew it too. I searched high and low. I was like a vulture stalking his prey, waiting for him to just give up. Now, let's listen to a clip from the film and notice how the words are said and how the music relates to the text. All men are soldiers at some point. Whether they know it or not. They fight for country. They fight for friends. They fight for themselves. Sean. Sean fought for country. But somewhere along the way, he started to fight for himself. Sean was already dead. And I think he knew it too. I searched high and low. I was like a vulture stalking his prey, waiting for him to just give up. Dawson, as he speaks, is making declarative statements about Sean, whom he's trailing but he seems actually to be musing, trying to figure it all out. Sean is like most men, yes, but from the tone of the voice and the music, we have the sense that Dawson is really asking why Sean has done what he's done. More deeply, in fact, why do people do what they do? Death, of course, is inevitable. But what is this about the human condition that might make people risk it early? This bit of dialogue is a microcosm of the way meaning in movies can be created, the words themselves, the expression the actor brings, and the music setting the tone. What's exciting here is the very haunting trumpet phrase we hear. I searched high and low. I was like a vulture stalking his prey, waiting for him to just give up. It's the kind of musical gesture that suggests unresolved thoughts. In fact, it's a lot like the enigmatic trumpet motive in Charles Ives' piece, The Unanswered Question. Ives musing musically on what life's all about. So here, in a small way, Composer Tom Alexander is asking what Sean's life is all about, and people like him, and maybe even all of us. And that layering and sensitivity to orchestration helps us know The Centenarian is not solely an action-adventure film, but more subtly a study of human motives and choices in life. And we'll hazard a guess that the care, passion, and depth here is related to that complex layering of life lessons from generations of family members inhabiting the dream world of film 
and filmmaking in the Alexander family, celebrating the power that movies have to give meaning to our lives, to make us laugh and cry, to entertain us and take us to places we would never, ever go. Writer, director, editor, producer Peter Alexander continues a more than century-long tradition in movies that began when his great-grandfather, Thomas Alexander, emigrated from Greece in 1898. Peter's father, Tom Alexander, is a writer, composer, and broadcaster from the Wyoming Valley here in northeastern Pennsylvania. Tom told interviewer Nick Landon of Cinema Den that he grew up in a movie theater, and for the first half of his life, it's all he knew. The 44th Theater was the center of his life, more his home than the house he grew up in. He helped out at the family business from the time he was seven years old. When he was 12, he began working there officially. He did everything from popcorn to pulling the curtain backstage to unveil the cinemascope screen. He cleaned the auditorium, worked the concession stand, sold tickets, and eventually became a projectionist. He'd sit in his dad's office as his dad would call his booking agent in Philadelphia to order films for exhibition. And now Peter is the fourth generation of the Alexanders making the world of movies a way of life. We had a chance to speak by phone with Tom Alexander and Peter Alexander, father and son, about their heritage and their current projects. It goes way back to the turn of the 20th century when my paternal grandfather immigrated from Greece, and um, he tried to make his way just like uh, like anyone at that time, coming through Ellis Island and then New York, Philadelphia, a bunch of places, until he wound up in Luzerne, Pennsylvania, as a candy maker, and he uh, he and his business partner decided that they wanted to try their hand at, well, they wanted to get a movie projector, first of all, and see what would happen and just show it to their friends, which they did, and they showed it in the back storeroom of the candy store, and word got out, and suddenly people wanted to see these flickering images, and this is 1906, about, I guess, and one thing led to the next, and they had to get more room. And and they rented a big storeroom across the street and put about 100 folding chairs, and it just kept going from there. His partner was uh, another a Greek immigrant named Louis Marinus and wound up being his brother-in-law after he brought his sister over from Greece to marry my grandfather, and uh, that's how it all got going. It was So his business partner became his brother-in-law. And you grew up while the theater was an active part of the family life. Well, yes, my grandfather sort of uh, kind of came out of retirement in 1938 to build the 44th Theater and with his eldest son, Alec, and, and then the other brothers followed, kind of all got into the business. And, of course, that was open until 1988. So I was a, a young man, grew up in that building, and spent the first 24 years of my life there. And uh, it was it was... I wouldn't trade it in for anything. It was it was just amazing. But, you know, I, I loved being part of that and learning about movies and music. And my, my dad and his brothers were real, real passionate film historians. Did you see everything, almost everything that came through, good, bad, or indifferent? Yes, I, I, I did. And we, and we saw a lot of movies that wound up never actually playing there because they would send screeners, you know, and the people that wanted us to maybe show a particular movie. So we'd have a private screening sometimes of movies that 
Some sometimes didn't make it. You know, we said, eh, I think we'll pass on this one. But, uh, and not always because we didn't think it was a good film. We just thought it wouldn't, no one would come to see it. <laughs> so that happened sometimes. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I always tell people by the time I was about 16, I saw more movies than most people see in their lifetime. And what did that mean for you when you launched life as an adult? Where did film figure? Was it going to be something that would be an avocation for you, Tom? Or was it something that was just built into your DNA? Yeah, it's interesting. A little of both. I mean, it was certainly in the DNA. But I, I wanted to be a filmmaker, and I, I did. I actually did wind up doing some film work. And I, it, by a strange set of circumstances, wound up co-writing what wound up to be Leslie Nielsen's last film, a comedy, kind of a frat boy comedy. But, you know, I, I didn't have the real drive to be a director. Uh, I really wound up going more toward music, more, more toward the scoring and, and writing, script writing. And I had been looking for a partner to kind of collaborate with my whole life, and then I finally found one, and he just happens to, to live here. <laughs> Peter, that's your cue. Yeah. I'm curious about what stories were told. What was the lore? Was there a kind of a myth of the Alexander film history that you grew up amidst? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I remember every day almost growing up, I would hear the stories about the theater, and it was kind of mystical to me because I, I had never been there until I think it was 15 was the first time that I actually went into the building. Of course, it wasn't a theater at that time. But I grew up hearing about the stories, and we have a bunch of movie posters from the theater that are in the house, and I, I, I've always seen them. And as I got a little older, I started watching a lot of those movies. And I, I, I think I can honestly say I've seen more movies from the 60s and the 70s than I have after I was born. <laughs> and and that's, that's pretty different than a lot of my friends. You know, they, they see what's out. They see what's new. But I, I've seen... I wouldn't say I've seen as many movies as my dad did by the time he was 16, but I've certainly seen a lot. And here, in not only would I see the movies, but I would hear the stories about what it was like playing them at the theater and kind of the background of how the audience would, would respond at the time. And, and that's always been something that's really interested me. And I think kind of was a, a stepping stone for me to realize that this is something that I wanted to do and get into making films. Did you two talk about films when you, Peter, were a lad? Did you say, did you see X, or I just saw X, did you see that scene why it was just remarkable the way that the director did that, or did you hear that music? Did you get into those kinds of conversations? You, you know what's funny, Erica? In the beginning, I would point those things out, like, now watch this. Where do you see this scene? Or wait, where do you see this performance? Now it's the opposite. Now Peter will say to me, right, oh, this is a great scene. I love this. But if she'll break it down in, in cinematic detail, way more than I can almost. It's, it's crazy to, to hear him talk about it. The only thing he'll, he'll ask me for sometimes, he'll say, how did this do? Did this movie do well when it played at the theater? Yeah. I get that question a lot. But in terms of the technology and, and how to break down a scene, he's, way, he's gone way past me. <laughs> I don't know, Peter, but if you couple the milieu in which you grew up, that kind of lore and the inner gritty detail about audience, I think that would be so important that you have an edge on the classmates that you may have had because you're emerging from it and not at a distance. Do you feel like you have an inside experience that maybe some of your colleagues don't? 
Maybe a little bit, yeah. You know, I think seeing the history of film and seeing how they made movies from its dawn in the silent era all the way up through kind of uh, the new wave in the, the 60s and the 70s, you know, the Spielberg era and uh, kind of the creation of the blockbuster, if you will. You know, sort of seeing how we got from where we were to where we are now and ultimately where we're going to be going, nobody knows. But I think it's it's interesting and it does give you a, a different perspective on how movies are made and kind of what's worked in the past, what hasn't, sort of what trends have been set and, and what's in and what's not. Yeah, I think it has. It's it's interesting. You mentioned, Tom, that you discovered your partner under your roof. Yeah. Tell us how you began. Was it just so natural that it happened, or did you have to do a little dance before you decided <laughs> that you could work together? How did the partnership unfold? I think, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, great question. I, I mean, I think his mom and I really kind of recognized early on that he was attracted by visuals from the youngest age, you know, on television and, and music as well, sound. He just was very responsive to that, and and he was very outgoing as a kid, a very little kid. And it just seemed to me that it was never like the old saying, practice your piano for three hours or whatever. <laughs> we never had to do that with film, you know. He just kind of came around, and he's like, what's this? What are you watching? What's this? And it was a natural curiosity and interest it was never uh, forced. I mean, we would certainly suggest things down the line. We'd say, hey, you might want to, if you like that, wait till you see this. But uh, it was never forced. No. So what was the first project? Peter, did you say, Dad, I need some help. I've got this project and it's due. And could you be a boom operator for me? Yeah, absolutely. I was in high school and I was making uh, what would become sort of a small feature length film. You know, I was about 16. It was, it was the first time I was really trying something like this. I didn't really know what I was doing at all. And he kind of helped me throughout the process of, of getting it going. But where it really came in was when we were in post-production and I needed music. And he was uh, able to compose the entire score for it. And he has done that for every one of my films since, which was it, six, six films now you've done it for. Is it six now? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a labor of love for me, although I will say sometimes <laughs> sometimes it was under the gun because we had uh, film festivals to make and deadlines, and it's like, how's the music coming? <laughs> and so sometimes we were really, really up against the clock, but uh, we always managed to get, it done, yeah. To, yeah, to get it done. I will say this too, Erica. I mean, it was an entirely different discipline. Uh, I had dabbled with soundtrack work prior to doing anything with Peter, but not not to that level of, of, of complexity and, and process and length. And it's a whole other thing as opposed to composing music for my band because Peter will look at something and he'll say, okay, we need, I don't know, 33 seconds of 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 music, of score, to go along with this scene where a guy's getting out of a car and walking across a parking lot and confronting uh, the antagonist or whatever, or, or the protagonist, or whatever it is, and we need that music. So it's like you're writing for a picture. It's, a, it's an entirely different kind of thing. You wouldn't use your dad's music if he wasn't doing what you needed him to do. So what do you hear? What are the strengths of your dad and his sensibilities when he has to deliver like that? 
Well, versatility. You know, he's able to do a lot of different types of music, and I've made a number of different types of film, from drama to sci-fi to more uh, comedic. And he's always been able to kind of make the music work for the picture. So that's been great. A lot of times, composers, film composers, you know, they sort of gear themselves towards a, a sort of genre. You know, you have your horror composers, you'll have your more dramatic composers. But he's been able to make it work for every every genre of film I've done. And before I started doing films, I would hear different kinds of music on his albums. And being a sort of uh, fusion jazz musician, that that alone is sort of uh, genre bending, I guess you could say, within music. It it kind of goes between. Well, jazz and even a little, would you say rock or how would you? Yeah, rock, elements of classical and uh, even in world music, you know, global ethnic music. Yeah. And carrying that into film has has been, well, I don't know how easy it is for him, but I mean, it's always worked for the film, so. (laughs) Well, I I have to say, Erica, I've been really lucky to have, uh, I I have to mention our good friend uh, in the last couple of films, uh, Emilio uh, Martinez, who's a bandmate of mine in my band, Earth Code, but he's also a world-class engineer and producer, and he, and he is a, a major... And guitarist. And guitarist and bassist and everything else. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's astounding. But without him, we, we, would, we would not be as far along as, as we are with, with those soundtracks. Tell us where you are right now. Are you in the middle of a project? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things that we are just sort of waiting for... I guess you could say the uh, I's to be dotted and the T's to be crossed. Two two projects. One is is a more of a, a docudrama, which is kind of close to home in a sense that it's about the Parthenon marbles that were taken in the early 1800s by uh, Lord Elgin and taken, and they now reside and have resided for the past couple hundred years in the London Museum. And so it's a docudrama about that. And then there's a, a horror film that, that, that Peter and I wrote a couple of years back, which we've had, I guess you could say what, Pete, varying degrees of pretty serious interest. Yeah. <laughs> and we've gotten very close to, we're hoping that this year, it actually in the next couple of months, that we will get a, a green light on it. We've got some folks attached to it, and we're, we're looking to get it get it made, and, and uh, hopefully uh, Peter makes a directorial, theatrical directorial debut. So the Parthenon docudrama, that goes back to your Greek family roots, right? <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does. We were surprised we got called in on it. And uh, Peter's the one that got called in on it. I'm kind of hitching a ride on that project. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's one of the first projects I've done that's sort of on a larger scale like this that's not my own screenplay. So working, you know, with another script and with a, with a different company and doing sort of a documentary-esque film, I haven't done that before. So it's kind of a lot of new territory for me to do. And I think for both of us to kind of be working on in terms of even score for the project is, is going to be, I would imagine, different than what we've done in the past. But, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what, what comes up with it. I think given our current situation with COVID and everything going on in the world, timeline of things is a little bit uh, difficult to figure out. And uh, figuring out how we're even going to put a crew together is new is new territory. You know, it's not as simple as just get everybody together and let's shoot something. There's different protocols that we have to abide by. And it'll be, it'll be new ground. And when, for example, you're creating a horror film, that is something that 
we know as a real genre. We know the kinds of tricks that directors can use to give us the creeps and that sort of thing. You want it to be not just a series of directorial tricks. How do you make it something that we really want to see that is deeper than just the, oh, ah, oh. <laughs> Yeah. I I think relatability is important when you're talking about any movie. And I think horror especially. You know, there's a lot of horror movies that, that come out all the time and some of them are successful and some of them aren't. But I think relatability to the characters is an area where they suffer. You're put in a situation where the characters are in uh, just a very bad place a lot of times when the movie starts. And it's hard to relate to people like that. And, and you know, whatever the family matter is, if it's a family, if it's a uh, a mother and her child, whatever the situation is. And I think that makes it easier to kind of do some of those tricks and just have a lot of bad things happen to, to people like that that already kind of feel broken, if you will. And so for for this script, for the story that we're doing, relatability and, and creating a family that was, I guess you could say, almost a little larger than life. and Solid. Kind of solid, comfortable, yeah, was something that we wanted to do. And I think the the hardest thing to do as a writer but the thing that sort of um, forces us out of some of those tricks is actually having the characters be smart and not do stupid decisions where they split up in, in, in the, the bad place or whatever it is in the film. So actually having the characters sort of think things through a little bit more was, was fun to do, but also made it a little bit more challenging because, you know, we could have kind of gone down an easier route, I guess, as writers and sort of just had a bunch of stupid decisions be made and then fall into a bunch of tricks and traps. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, you want to try to not fall into those cliches, I guess yeah. you could say, because it is really easy to get a quick rise out of somebody. And it almost becomes the jokes of a stand-up routine where you hear, why do these people at horror movies stay when they know they shouldn't? They still stay behind. But we're not playing it that way. We're doing it a little bit differently. Let me just ask you then, Tom, can you help yourself all those horror films you grew up watching, is all that music in there too? And do you just for fun pull something out that is not a trick, but that is an homage to something you might remember from the past? How does it work for you? Yeah, I have my favorite film composers, certainly. Bernard Herrmann is certainly one of them. Uh, he's high up the list. Of course, he did a lot of work with Alfred Hitchcock. And he did a lot of the Twilight Zone music, background music. And there are others. There, There's Akira Ifukubi, who did the music for most of the Japanese horror films or science fiction films, really, Godzilla and so forth. But he also did a lot of dramas, and his music is absolutely terrific. John Williams, naturally. I mean, in every genre, John Williams is brilliant. But some of the 20th century classical music, too. Ligeti, Pandarecki, those kinds of guys, they wrote some really, really incredibly vivid cinematic music. So all those guys are in there. They're influences, no question. But at the same time, I'm trying to also figure out some things that are original and, and different and even a little bit minimalist and try some different things that maybe are unconventional for the film. And you decided to take on the mob, didn't you? The mob, yes, with your early two films. Yeah, I did, yes. My first two films were kind of mob dramas. The first one I was, I was still in high school when I did the first film, and then I was, uh, I was a freshman in college when I did the second one. 
both of which were features, which to anybody that's starting out in film, I don't know if I would really recommend doing a feature out of the gate. That's a little bit much, I guess, to try to, to try to crank something out on that size. But yes, I did do films on the mob, which was, which was different. It was interesting. I mean, at that time, and I think still so, you know, the Godfathers, specifically one and two were probably my favorite films. And I, I love The Sopranos as a show and Goodfellas, of course, and a bunch of other movies, which I think put me in a mindset that made me want to do, do something mob-related. Let me ask you this. Can you be a film director, a film professional in South Florida these days? Can you do the work that you want to do where you are? Well, you know, I don't really know yet. I think that the industry has changed a lot, even over the last 10 years or so. California, which was once sort of the main hub for all film production, really isn't anymore. It shifted to Georgia for a long time because of the tax credits. And now it's actually in Canada because they're offering better credits than, than Georgia is. And Florida recently did just start to open up the door for some tax credits. And I think that that might start to bring more production to Florida. But because of um, all these locations now, and movies are shooting all over the country and even in other countries as well, to try to save as much money as possible, I think that the requirement to move out to California to have your career might not be as much of a necessity as it once was. And yeah, ideally, you know, I would love to just be able to live where I want and work wherever the film calls to be made. Whether or not that that happens, we'll have to see. There's still a lot that has to be done and a lot of work that I need to do before I can can really say that firmly if if I if I'm going to need to move or not. But uh, as of right now, I'm I'm not really sure. As we close, is there anything more you can tell us about the new horror film? Let me tell you this: the working title is called Zathena with a Z, Zathena, and it's uh, the name of I guess you could say the the antagonist in the film. And we're hoping that the new film will have a definite northeastern Pennsylvania connection to it. The family summers in the Poconos in this film, and they live the rest of the time in the Philly area, but the majority of the film takes place in the Poconos. So we can tell you that. So who knows? Maybe there'll even be some, some shots of the Market Street Bridge or who knows where else. You just never know. Tom Alexander, writer, composer, broadcaster. He's from northeastern Pennsylvania. With Peter Alexander, writer, director, editor, and producer, father and son, speaking about their family history in and around films and their partnership in making movies. For more information on the web, alexanderproductions.com alexanderproductions.com and if you're interested in film history there is a wonderful section on that website about the 44th theater and its history wonderful images and wonderful anecdotes and it's alexanderproductions.com we'll be looking for the new horror film by the alexanders zathena and we recommend the award-winning centenarian to you and for more information Alexander Productions. Dot com.
Music of Tom Alexander on WVIA.